0: Welcome to Never Lick the Spoon, the podcast from the Institute of Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. I'm Isabella von Holstein and in this series I'm going to continue to bring you stories from the teeny tiny world of molecules and how they're being used to solve some of the big challenges facing our planet. I'm also going to highlight some of the wonderful people involved in science and technology across Imperial and further afield. 3D printing, or additive manufacturing, is a method for producing objects by printing them in layers. The layers can be made out of metal, ceramic, or most often plastics, just like objects produced using traditional manufacturing techniques such as moulding. The neat thing about 3D printing is that no two objects need to be the same, as the digital model used to control the print can be altered each time. This means they're a good way of printing lots and lots of unique objects, like hip replacements where the shape needs to be subtly different to exactly fit each patient. This way of automating uniqueness is why medicine is very interested in 3D printing. But so far, we've been printing inanimate materials. What if we could actually print with living cells? I spoke to Dr. Connor of the Dyson School of Design Engineering about this research goal. He started by explaining the difference between three key ways that inorganic objects interact with living things. They can be biocompatible, biostable or bioreceptive. But none of these mean the same thing as biological.
1: Biocompatible just means can a biological system interact with this? Yes or no? Doesn't mean that the material is biological. Biostable then means will it stay in that biological system for a very long period of time without becoming toxic. So metal implants, put them in the body, they're biocompatible. As you use them and you wear them down, where particles that come off, they are no longer biostable because of their size. Cells attack them and that causes other complications. So it's not biostable, right? And then uh, bioreceptive. So if I think of plants, I could put a material by the plant doesn't kill it. It's biocompatible, but it's not doing anything. But if I change its geometry and structure and stuff, then the roots will get in there and it adds to the performance of that plant. That's bioreceptive. 3D printing something biological, we're not very good at. We're much better at the other three. We create systems and we add biological things to them. So typically we are adding cells, adding plants, algae, whatever it is, or putting it into animals, humans. And biological system interacts with it. What we're really bad at is printing biological systems. And that's the big difference. And that's kind of what we're trying to do in my lab. We're we're developing systems to print biological things.
0: To find out more about a recent major step forward in this field, I spoke to a member of Connor's lab.
2: Hi everyone, I am Ali Mohammed. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Dyson School of Design Engineering. Uh, I've been working there for about a year and a half.
0: And you've been working on bioprinting. Can you explain what that means?
2: Bioprinting, in its essence, is printing with live cells. um, And that could include bacteria, that can include microorganisms like algae, that can include mammalian cells or cancer cells. For our current project, we're printing with microorganisms, so green algae, um, and we're printing them into a hydrogel. So ultimately what you have is a hydrogel that's got algae infused into the entire structure. And we wanna see whether the algae survive, does it thrive, does the population of the algae grow in there? Um, and what we measure is obviously the, synthetic, the photosynthetic rate. So do we measure oxygen release um, from, from the hydrogel. And as the population of the algae grows, your print will go from the initial color, which for us is an orange tint, All the way to green because your population of algae grows. Algae has been bioprinted before but it's been bioprinted using a traditional bioprinter which is an extrusion bioprinter which basically just takes a basic gel that's infused with algae and it just pushes it out of a syringe. What we've done is we've taken a a light-based printer which uses UV light uh, and as most people know UV light is quite harmful and on the molecular level it's even more harmful. So if you shine UV light on cells or algae, it's likely going to damage their DNA and result in death. So what we've done is created this bioprinter that uses light in the visible light spectrum that's non-toxic. We can actually 3D print gels with this light source. It's a much lower energy light source, so actually get a material from that lower energy is very difficult. So we've really had to adjust the chemistry to get a 3D printed structure using a light-based technique that's never been shown before, and we get a live material.
0: What's wrong with doing the extrusion-based one? Why would you want to do a light-based one in addition or instead of?
2: The extrusion techniques are very, very limited. So if you imagine a nozzle that's just printing layers on top of each other, the resolution is very low, the printing speed is very low, and you get shear stresses when you push the gel that's infused with cells out of that nozzle. Um, and cells are small, tiny little dots. If you put too much stress on them, they send signals to themselves and say, this is too stressful and they die or they burst. Moving on to light-based printing, you're just, you've got a, a vat of resin. So it's liquid resin, a light shines on it. And that light is controlled either with a laser or a, um, an LCD screen. So you can get really high resolution. So you've gone from a scale of a millimeter or two, where you can print channels in that, in that range, to the micron level, which is very important because that's what the real vascular structure in the body is. So if you think about your capillaries, your veins, your arteries, they, they've got a very wide range of um, sizes.
0: What's actually going on at a molecular level when light interacts with the resin to make it change from being a liquid to a solid?
2: So that's the basis of polymer chemistry. We've got something in the resin that's called an initiator. So basically when the light hits, the initiator will allow the monomer to start connecting together and form much longer chains, and then for them to cross-link and form a solid. So you're only creating that structure when the light is switched on. You, You basically build one layer, the light stops, and then the next layer.
0: How long does it take?
2: So it depends how reactive your material is. In UV light systems, you're exposing them for 30 seconds, and that's 30 seconds of UV light on cells. They're not gonna like that. Our printer uses a much lower energy, so we actually print in a slower manner, but it's less toxic and they don't mind the light. So for example, if you're using a UV light, each layer might take 15 seconds, 30 seconds. With our printer, it might take 60 seconds. So it could be twice as long, but the benefits outweigh the time that it takes. And with manipulating the chemistry, etc., we can probably push it down much more.
0: What sort of polymer do you use to hold the algae? I think I heard you call it a hydrogel. A
2: hydrogel is basically a structure that's made of polymers. And these polymers have cross-linkers in there that hold these polymers together. So if you imagine uh, a mesh-like structure that can absorb water uh, and hold a very large quantity of water without actually breaking apart, so a lot of the hydrogels uh, we've made in the past will swell up to a thousand times the original weight, but they won't break apart.
0: Is there anywhere in sort of ordinary daily life where people might have hydrogels in their house already?
2: So if you wear contact lenses, contact lenses were initially made of hydrogels. That's, that's one of the most popular ones.
0: So when you're printing a hydrogel using liquid material, we can call that an ink. Or a bio ink if you're printing with live cells, do you have to do things like check that the cells can survive the pH and do you have to give them food in the bio ink?
2: Bio ink and a biomaterial ink are very two very different things. So a bio ink will have the cells infused in there, whereas a biomaterial ink you 3D print and then put the cells after you've printed. So for bio inks you have to do you have to add media, cell um cell food essentially, so the cell survive you have to make sure the pH is fine, you have to make sure the viscosity is good for them. Because obviously if the viscosity is too too viscous, there's not enough oxygen diffusion and they might end up um, suffocating and the cells could die. And if you're 3D printing on a temperature controlled system where you have to go to 50 degrees, the cells are not gonna like it. So sometimes you have to for throw biomaterial ink without the cells if you can't integrate them into the, uh, into the bio-ink.
0: So a biomaterial ink is much easier to print. Why is it worth really trying to print with the cells and not just going, oh, okay, well, I'll always just bring a framework and then sprinkle the cells on?
2: So if you think about the way the body is on the inside, your cells are integrated throughout the entire layer of each of your um, tissues and organs. It's the same with a printed structure. If you just put the cells on the top, they'll basically just surround the outside Whereas if you print with a bio ink, they're integrated into the entire structure, which gives you a more realistic understanding and a better uh, tissue, um, like an, a native tissue model of of the body, um, and that's a definitely more useful and more representative um, technique.
0: Is printing with algae useful in itself, or is it just proof that you can print with live cells? There's a lot of different applications that can use these kind of printed technologies that
2: we've made in energy or environmental applications, or sewage or sea seawater.
0: Could you describe a couple of those applications, like energy, for example? So basically, if you've got the absorption of sunlight uh, and it
2: turns it into oxygen, then you can recollect the oxygen and apply it to fields that require that in um, the energy sector. I think algae has also been used in. Um, sewage treatment so that can also be integrated if you have different structures of 3D printed gels that can be integrated into a sewage structure that maybe washes over the algae and it exchanges.
0: So I can understand wanting to start with algae because they're single-celled organisms so each individual cell is complete in itself but that's very different from trying to print a tissue where you've got all sorts of different cells that are all trying to interact
2: That's probably the most difficult part of this entire bioprinting field is not only integrating um, cells with one material, but it's multi-cells with multi-materials. When you think about the body, when you think about tissue, we're not a single cell organism and neither is our tissue or our organs. Um, The heart has three or four different cell types. The brain has several different cell types. Skin will have several different cell types and they come in, obviously, stacks, or they're well-integrated.
0: Connor Mayant agrees that although this project is a big step forward, 3D printing technology can't yet build this kind of multiscale complexity.
1: The next frontier in uh, bioprinting, in 3D printing for biological things, is um, is that multiscale complexity, or creating objects that are heterogeneous, we're not very good at manufacturing those things. Uh, nature has developed far more complex manufacturing processes that build things additively. That use cells, you deposit material step by step and you build it up over time. You know, you pick up a, uh, a snail shell and you look at the spiral pattern, you look at how this thing is being built bit by bit to build up this complex multi-scale object you keep zooming in on that and you start to look at the actual building blocks within that, it's, it's very simple ingredients. You know, there's actually only a few kind of molecules, elements in there, but the order and the structure of it on that level and then how it's then built up into the next uh, length scale, the next level, it's that that creates that amazing breadth of, Materials we see in nature, that breadth of mechanical properties we see in nature, and breadth of mechanical properties we see in even just one object in nature, we cannot manufacture that yet. You, we can kind of recapture in silo each individual element or each individual mechanical property, but then trying to bring them all together, we just don't have the processes yet to do that. That's To me, it's exciting because, you know, that's a challenge and that's what we like.
0: But how do you make it happen? That's the question. You need
1: a concerted effort across the entire process. It's material scientists that come up with the polymers or other photoactive materials. It's the technologists who are making the machinery to do that with. The software uh, designers and engineers that create the tools for the designer to use to actually... Envisage their concept and tell the machine how to build it. Um, so it, it's it's a lot of work all the way across.
0: Thank you to Connor Mayant and Ali Mohammed for talking to me about their research. I'll be talking to Connor again about a different aspect of bioprinting very soon. I think most of us would agree that printing algae into oxygen generators or sewage filters would probably be useful. Working with human cells is some technological steps away, but is ethically a rather different situation. The potential benefit is that it would cut demand for animal testing and for human or non-human tissue or organ transplants. But is it ethical to make living tissues? Beyond that, how could this technology be made available to everyone? fairly? And who would own the bioprinted object? These are big questions. Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at imperial underscore IMSI, or email us on imsi at imperial.ac.uk. Until next time, take care, and remember, never lick the spoon.